Hi folks, a quick announcement before the show today. First up, events. We've got three events coming up and they're all in person. I think I said earlier in the year that this was going to be the year of the face-to-face catch-up and it certainly seems to be going that way. So, Thursday the 13th of June, this is for you Brisbane friends. So the Brisbane Take On Board Meetup will be on Thursday the 13th of June, an informal gathering of listeners, program alumni, friends and connections. It's a free event, so come along. Next up, the 18th of July, this is for our Warnable and Great South Coast Take On Board Friends, an event run in conjunction with Leadership Great South Coast and Bernadette Northeast. Governance, from fundamentals to advanced practice. Super early bird tickets for this event close on the 10th of June, so get on it. Then the third event, a bit further down the track, the 22nd of August. This is for our Sydney friends, a Take On Board meetup in Sydney. Details of all of these events are on my website. There's a link to that in the show notes and I would love to see you at one or all of them. And a second quick announcement, a shout out to the new Take On Board Kickstarter alumni, Alex Cuthbertson, Anne Wallington, Audrey Umity, Ebony Worth, Emma Bonser, Helen Rizzoli, Julia O'Reilly, Kath Harris, Leah Bramhill, Nisha Amanala, Susan Fitoza and Yaz Volra. What an incredible group of people. I cannot wait to hear about the next steps that you're taking to the boardroom and I have no doubt you're all going to make an amazing contribution. Okay, that's it for today. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Last week on the Take On Board podcast, you heard from Megan May about her experience in being a mentee. So today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Sandy DeWolf about being a mentor in the same program. We'll also touch on the board relationship with the CEO and reporting to boards. First, let me tell you about Sandy. Sandy chairs the Eastern Domestic Violence Service and the Western Integrated Family Violence Committee, and she's also on the board of Kilfinnan and Deputy Chair of the Victorian Children's Council. She's previously been on the boards of Families Australia, Great Connections, the Centre for Excellence, Family Planning Victoria, Cenotex, and a range of others. Sandy has spent her professional career working with others to prevent violence to women and children and to help them recover. She started as a social worker in Broadmeadows with what is now the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing Victoria. She's worked in the community sector since 1989 and her most significant leadership role was as the CEO of Berry Street, which she did for 26 years. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Sandy. Thanks, Anya. Sandy, before we begin our discussion today, as always, I would like to dig just a little bit deeper about you. Can you tell me a story about young Sandy that tells us a bit about how you got to where you are today? 
So it's, uh, compared with lots of other people, Helia, I think it's quite a boring story. So I had a very stable um, childhood, really. Went to the same school from the time I was four until I finished school. And I guess my parents were big influences on my life, as they mostly are for everybody, but positive, very positive for me. My mum was the Honorary Secretary of Travellers Aid, which is a voluntary organisation that helps travellers yes. for 35 years. And mum and dad were very, um, just very community-minded, so Meals on Wheels and all sorts of other things. I think the other thing is that I was always encouraged to believe I could do whatever I wanted, you know, whatever I wanted and, and and I could take every opportunity that was that came my way. So I was aware at the time that it was a privileged upbringing, um, not mm. wealthy, I don't mean wealthy, but privileged in the sense of opportunity. But I probably didn't realise as much as I do now just what that privilege meant and the confidence that gave me, I guess, to do other things in life. So did you go straight into social work then? When I left school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And again, like <laughs> unlike some people who have such a clear sort of plan about their life, I never had any plans, still don't really. So I went and I did honours arts at uh, Monash University and then thought, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. I took um, a year off and then really fell into social work. And I got a cadetship with the Department of Community Welfare, as it was then, and that meant that I was bonded for two years with the department. Um, that's where I started in Broadmeadows. And yeah. I'm just so fortunate that I've ended up in, you know, a career and a profession that I just love. And um, mm-hmm. it's been wonderful to work with, uh, particularly the people I've worked with, because mm-hmm. people, who choose to, you know, people who choose to work in the community sector aren't motivated by money. Yes, they need to be paid properly but you know their motivation is to give back mm-hmm. and um, I've had the privilege of working in that sector love for my whole whole life really and still and in lots of different ways too. Mm, it is really wonderful when people love what they do. It is a privilege I think you know I think it's um, I remember saying to people at Berry Street when I was there 26 years which is an incredibly long time mm. uh, it wasn't the same organizations when I started otherwise you know you could be uh, people would think oh my god what was she doing in my role at Berry Street I was intellectually emotionally and ethically challenged every day mm. and was always learning um, from people around me and from the clients with whom we worked how fabulous. In fact, I, I only saw earlier, I think on something that you'd sent through to me, that when you started with Berry Street, it was after a, an amalgamation with um, Sutherland Homes as well. I, I grew up in Diamond Creek, which is where Sutherland Homes were. So as soon as I read that, I remembered that and the kids that came to our school that were from Sutherland Homes and and so on. So I hadn't realised. Um, That's right. I, I started as a CEO in um, July 1991 and um, we were quite well known in the community, as you're saying, mm. but uh, certainly not any broader than that and we were not financially sustainable and we really needed to find a partner. So it was a terrific coming together with Berry Street So it was, mm. and I was fortunate enough to be appointed as the CEO. We can hear from that you know, incredibly rich history that there's going to be lots of fun little lessons you're going to share with us over the next half hour or so. I hope so. Um, (laughs) So let's start with the mentoring. You have been uh, a mentor for the VHA, the Victorian Healthcare Association Mentoring Program. Let's just start with how you got involved with that program. So I was asked and so what I normally do when I'm asked to do things, I usually say yes. But I, I'm very, I was very, always been very conscious of 
the informal role, mentoring role mm-hmm. that I've played throughout my career to countless staff and colleagues. And and since I've finished full-time work, I've been a mentor with Kilfinnan and also with a women's development, women's leadership program that was run through Leadership Victoria. Mm-hmm. And with VHA, um, I thought, you know, if I can contribute something, then that's good. So happy to do it. In as much detail as you're able to share, because sometimes things that are discussed in the mentoring relationship can't be shared, but tell us about the mentoring relationship, maybe some of the challenges that are shared with you and and just how it works. So I'm very fortunate, particularly with uh, the mentee through the VHA program. He was an experienced board chair and uh, when we started talking, I was thinking, are you sure you need to be in this program? Maybe we should reverse roles because he knew a lot already. So so with him, it was really a matter of probably having a, a person outside his organisations mm-hmm. uh, that he could sort of bounce ideas off, check his thinking, you know, was he missing out on some, some things? Were there other things he could be doing? It was really an exchange of ideas as much as, you know, me being a mentor, him being a mentee. So one of the critical things about mentoring is that the mentees were prepared. So mm-hmm. he would always send me a week before these are the issues I want to talk about this week and next week and that would give me an opportunity to think about it but also if I had some resources that I could send his way which I did a number of times I shared some of the board documents on some on the from the EDVOS you know where the organization where I chair with their permission of course and you know other resources that I could find uh, for him with another mentoring relationship with a woman through the leadership program being run by the government, she this was she was looking for her first board position and she was a CFO um, mm-hmm. and working in, a, in an organisation that she wasn't really very happy in and also was not happy about some of the ethical issues that she was mm-hmm. um, being confronted with. So I really, I think I helped her a lot more than I helped the mentee through the VHA mm. program because she would really need to work out, you know, how does she get the sort of role that she wants to, how does she, what's, where, where does she want to move to, and in terms of boards, what opportunities would there be for her there? So she ended up resigning and getting a really good good job in actually in the family violence sector and we keep in touch and um you know it's been it's been very good she started on getting onto some boards too so I think she would say it was incredibly useful I would hope that Paul who's the person that I mentored through VHA would say it was helpful too but not to the same degree because he had lots of experience and knew what he was doing and was more a more a um sounding board and checking point for him I mm. think so he was the CEO of the organisation, right? He was the chair. He was the chair, right. Yeah. And being the chair, likewise, though, it can be a really lonely position to be in because you can't always share all of the challenges with your board. I mean, you can broadly, but you can't always share them with the CEO that you're working with. So I imagine having that safe space where you can just toss things around because there's not many people you can do that with. No, I think that that's right. And he, and he certainly did value that. Um, mm. They'd had a change of CEO and there'd been some issues with the previous CEO and the new CEO was a lot better but still wasn't using the board in the way that he mm. thought he could. So it was sort of how do you tweak that? What sort of conversations do you have? Um, we talked about what other conversations you might with have a couple of board members who, you know, maybe needed to move on. And, I mean, he knew what the issues were and he knew 
the best way probably about going about you know fixing them was just really somebody to say yeah that's what I would have done or that sounds sensible to me or perhaps have you have you thought about tweaking this part of it but Mm. he was a very competent person (laughs) how fabulous what do you get out of the mentoring relationship well it's not you don't go into it for what you'll get Mm. out of it but um I always learn so I think one of the things that I've enjoyed and still do about my life is being curious and about curious Mm. about people about issues about how people do things and so Yes, I always learn from from every experience I have talking in the mentoring relationship, I, I learn too. And there were a couple of things where Paul had done something and I thought, oh, yes, I think I, so I said, look, I think we might try that. Fantastic. So you've talked about the mentee needing to be prepared to make it successful. What are your tips for success for setting up that relationship? One of the things that I've always done is had an agreement an agreement in writing but not that it sort of holds us to you know anything in particular except that it's it says this is what I expect out of it mm-hmm. both of us say this is what I expect and this is what um you know the mentee is hoping to get out of the relationship and then I can say this is what I'm going to bring and reviewing that at periodically or whatever sort of time period you think is useful and um if it's not helpful or if it doesn't feel right, then mm. I would encourage people to say thank you very much but this isn't right, but don't give up on the opportunity to perhaps find somebody else. They are fa- fabulous tips for mentoring for mentors and mentees, so I'm sure that's going to be really valuable for people. But I want to change tack a little bit, I guess, because you've been both a CEO and a board chair, you know, for a significant part of your career you've got insights into the relationship between the CEO of an organisation and the chair of an organisation. So what's your advice for chairs and CEOs in ensuring that that relationship, you know, remains strong and constructive and robust? One of the things that's become really obvious is just how dependent boards are on their CEOs. I mean, it it sounds blendingly obvious, but in, in terms of the information that they provide to the board, and I have, you know, had lots of conversations with other CEOs about their, not so many with chairs actually, but their reporting to the board, what to do, what do they tell their board and what mm-hmm. sort of format. And it's, you know, building that sense of trust that you as a CEO can be honest about what the issues are and know that when you raise the worries as well as the good things that, you know, there won't be a slamming down or, you know, that people will listen and look and, and just look at how they can be supportive rather than look to blame is is absolutely mm-hmm. fundamental. So mm-hmm. I, I had seven presidents while I was at Berry Street and I mm-hmm. ended up with being now I'm friends with six out of the seven. The mm. other one is not for any reason except that I just don't see him. But I worked I worked my relationships with my chairs hard. So mm. I would, whenever I got a new chair, I would spend quite a bit of time trying to get to know them, giving them as much opportunity as they wanted or needed to ask about the organisation, spend time in the organisation, be as open as I could or open as I could as they wanted to, to meet with other staff. And so really building and then talking to them about what is it that's important to them 
and particularly around formal reporting, but obviously also informal reporting. So, you know, what is it that they like to see in board reports and what is it that they would expect if, you know, when you have a phone call or when, you know, when you would email the whole board. So really listening to them and trying to work out how to, you know, meet their needs in the most productive way for the organisation. Mm-hmm. And as the board chair, I've sort of done that a bit in reverse. Again, working, you know, I've been involved usually, but not always, in selecting the CEO. So Mm. you're starting off that relationship with a sense, I hope, of, of honesty, integrity, mutual trust, and being very clear about what you think the issues are when they're appointed. And then understanding that that might change once they get in on the job, but you know, it's certainly being very upfront and not hiding anything, particularly if there have been issues, not mm-hmm. hiding anything when you're appointing someone. So you're starting from a position of trust, yeah. and then meeting with them depends what's happening. So when you've got some things happening, you know, problems, um, I would be meeting formally once a week, and phone calls in between, and if. Under normal circumstances, you know, probably fortnightly or monthly, depending again, again depending on what's happening in the organisation mm-hmm. and the state, you know, it's evolving. So, and being very clear with the uh, the CEO about understanding the board's role is about strategy and governance, and we won't interfere with operational issues, but we need to know if there are things that are bothering you. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, that's that's the sort of thing. It, I mean, it's a relationship like anything else, I guess, isn't it? So you're at Berry Street for a while, I guess, but it must have been a little bit exhausting having seven different presidents over that time because I'm guessing each time it, to some extent, rewrote the rules of the way things worked. Well, it was stimulating too because they were mm. terrific people. I knew them all. So they'd all been on the board for a while and most of them stayed on the board when they left. So... I think it's quite stimulating because yeah. I wasn't losing the people who had been the president. Yeah. You know, they were staying on the board, but I had an opportunity to work more closely with the with the new president, and they were all such terrific people, and I learned so much from all of them. That no, it was more stimulating. Now you talked about dealing with problems before and how that might impact the relationship between the CEO and the chair, just in how often they meet and so on. Now. I understand you've been through a bit of a crisis at the board. I'm not sure if it was when you were CEO or when you were on the board. We're both in Melbourne and the front page of the Herald Sun test is something that is often talked about in boards. For those that are not from Melbourne, the Herald Sun is, you know, the tabloid paper in Melbourne and it is often used as the risk test. Oh, well, will it end up on the front page of the Herald Sun? You've been on the front page of the Herald Sun for what I'm guessing is all the wrong reasons. So I'm wondering if you can tell us what happened and how the board worked with that crisis. Sure. It was in uh, January, on January the 19th, 2001. I know the date from uh, indelibly impressed in my memory because we were about to celebrate our 125th year. We were just planning the year and then 7 o'clock in the morning we're in the front page of the Herald Sun. I was the CEO. Mm -hmm. So it was about an issue called chroming, which is when kids use um, bags and with glue or something and they inhale the substance Mm -hmm. and it, it makes them very ill and it's an awful thing to do. It's a, quite a long story, but I'll keep it quite short. So at various Fruit, we looked after kids who had 
couldn't be at home and suffered a lot of violence and abuse and often turned to substances to help them sort of deal with the trauma that they had. And then substances, by that I mean alcohol and cigarettes and things as well. So so we decided a couple of years before this that we'd develop a substance use policy, uh, which was from cigarettes to legal drugs to illegal drugs and there wasn't any the government didn't have any so we set up an expert advisory group and we did a discussion paper which we had talked about at the board and one of the issues that was particularly relevant for us was if we so if you write down a policy then you need to be able to implement it and you will be held to that but if you don't write it down then you're leaving it to the discretion of residential care workers mm -hmm. to you do whatever they thought was best and mm -hmm. we didn't think that was fair so the board was very clear that we needed to have an organizational position and we need to be able to understand that so we did a discussion paper we wrote then we wrote the policy we were actually given a best practice grant by the minister at the time to make it available to the rest of the sector because it was very well researched it was easy to follow it was it was a terrific piece of work which as it turns out was incredibly fortunate because in June the year before we had put a submission into a parliamentary inquiry into I think it was just chroming actually and we we were then reported the report came out in about August that we thought that this approach that we took which was you don't turn the kids away basically you keep them in the house, you give them water, you watch them, you make sure they're okay. Because there have been several instances, not with us, but where kids have just run out on roads and run out on train mm. tracks. It was incredibly dangerous. So it was the, it was the sensible, you know, harm-minimising sort of approach. And so we'd been given a best practice grant. We'd talked about it on the radio. And then six months later, out of the blue, we are on the front page of the Herald Sun with a headline, something like Berry Street Runs, safe chroming rooms or it was, it was picking up on the safe injecting stuff at the time mm. so a couple of things that are really stand out for me about that was one the board was absolutely committed to this policy they'd been involved for 18 months they understood it mm. secondly the chair was very well connected I mean we knew that but very well connected and organised, this was a Monday, and by the Wednesday we had an op-ed piece in the Herald Sun and we met, we met with the editor of the Herald Sun and she, she could sort of get into some places. Thirdly, we had an absolute brilliant woman who was expert in crisis management and she moved in within three hours with a with an EA and we had a war room set up in the boardroom and... and uh, we put out, in those days it wasn't email as much, but 10,000 pieces of communication in a couple of days and I did 22 or any interviews on that first day and Mary was managing all that. Mm -hmm. So we had two people who were very, very good at their job and the other thing that was absolutely vital was communication. So because mm. you can imagine what it was like internally, the staff were just traumatised because the government said we should have to stop doing it. Yeah. And um, that was really tricky. But the, the thing that was that was most significant why I think in the end, as an organisation, we benefited. It was a positive for us. The board were keen for me to have do more media. That happened. I you know, ticked that off on the first month. But it gave us um, exposure to um, we had about 200 people sort of contact us, all of whom were positive except for, except for seven. And it, it led to an approach from a philanthropic trust to say we really like your work and that mm -hmm. led to the establishment of our first Berry Street School and government changed their policy and the Herald Sun actually changed their stance on chroming over time too. So 
it was an incredibly challenging time to work through, uh, probably for two weeks initially, but then and then there was a lot of mapping up to do. But mm. actually, it was a very it was a positive, and it was because the board was totally behind the policy. They had lots yeah. of opportunity to understand it, ask questions. They knew we got the best advice uh, in developing it. It was a very interesting couple of weeks. And it's interesting because, like I said at the at the outset of this, often that, you know, the front page of the Herald Sun test is what people use in assessing risk. You ended up on the front page of the Herald Sun, but I think what I'm hearing there is even if you'd known that that was going to be a risk, you wouldn't have done things differently. No, we wouldn't have because we knew it was a risk, which is why we got the expert advice, why we're taking the time, why we got mm-hmm. all the board on board, why we got staff on board. Yes. We, oh, the other thing I forgot, we trained all our staff. And that was mm. one of the that the government wanted us to do. So we had trained all our staff in the policy. Yes. Yeah, we wouldn't have done anything differently as mm. it out. But you're right. I've quoted the, the Herald Sun test many times. Uh, <laughs> but the, the alternative was not meeting our duty of care to these young people. Yes. And secondly, putting staff in an impossible position where they just had okay. to use their own judgment, which, and if something went wrong, you know, there was nothing to back them up. And that wasn't yes. fair. Again, in governance terms, it's a beautiful example around the lowest risk option is often not the best option. You know, yes, there was risk. I mean, there was risk around not doing it as well, obviously, risk for the kids, risk for the staff, risk for in all sorts of other ways. But to do the right thing involves risk. It involves, as you'd said before, ethical questions and when to when to just step forward and do the right thing. It sounds like that's what the organisation did and the board backed it, which is just what you need in a crisis it was terrific and we were a bit lucky that we happened to have well and I should say it was our good management that we happened to have the right skills on the board it wasn't just luck but mm. you know if it, it had been the two years before Mary mightn't have been there and Janine would have been the chair we still would have been fine but we yes. would have been able to manage quite as well as quickly Oh, well, well done on having the right skills in the boardroom and on, on meeting your media interviews KPIs within the first three weeks of the year. Very impressive. <laughs> oh, look, we have covered so many wonderful things here, you know, both about mentoring and menteeing, the board chair and CEO relationship, and of course, crisis management right at the end. What are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? I think one of the things that I worry a bit about is uh, with the emphasis, increasing emphasis on risk, which I totally understand, Mm. that boards can focus too much on that and Mm. perhaps not understand the business well enough. Mm. So one of the things that I want to always try to do with my boards when I'm as the CEO but also as chair is to have that balance between your financial inequality and your risk sort of compliance issues mm-hmm. but also give the board as many opportunities as possible to understand the business. Yeah. So one of the things that we always do is, um, or I've always done, is have guests come to the board, so key stakeholders, um, people you want to develop relationships with. Sometimes they're people who might challenge the board in thinking things different ways. So really providing opportunities for the board to get a, a much deeper and broader understanding of the business of the organisation, the context within which the organisation uh, works 
because I think that's usually that's the reason people join boards because they're mm. committed to the you know the purpose of the organisation. But I think sometimes the emphasis on compliance and risk can mean that you have board members who really don't understand the business sufficiently to be mm. able to give the sort of advice that is most useful. Is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? So this is an old article, but one that I've turned to a number of times and I still think it has relevance today. It's not mm. specifically about boards. It's about creating high-impact non-profits. And it's by mm. Heather McLeod Grant and Leslie Crutchfield, mm. uh, the Stanford Social Innovation Review in fall 2007. And I think it just distills very succinctly sort of six key elements about what makes an impactful not-for-profit we've we used it a couple of times with boards at Berry Street I haven't used it on my current boards actually but uh, I I think it's just worth a quick look at fantastic I'll make sure we put a link to that in the show notes when we put this episode out fantastic thank you so much for sharing uh, your stories and your wisdom and your tips with the take on board community today I know people will get a huge amount out of it so thank you for being here thank you Halia and thank you for your commitment to improving the way that we can all work together hi there it's Halia that's a wrap for the take on board podcast today I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.